So we are continuing in our series on the gospel of Mark. We're going to be focusing on a conversation that's recorded in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. We'll have it on the side screens, but if you want to navigate there on your devices or if you brought a Bible so that you can follow along, go ahead and do that. And I think to just maybe speak really honestly, um, this is a sermon that I have intentionally chosen to not try to overpolish. This is one that I that sat really heavy with me over the past two weeks as I was working through this passage, as I was trying to make sense of what God might even be speaking to me, but what he might be speaking to us. And as we work through this, I, I think it might come out to you as well. I felt like as I was working through this passage, Jesus kept asking me, are you sure you love me more than anything else? Just over and over. It's a passage about the Pharisees confronting Jesus' disciples and Jesus looking back at them and saying, like, you are a, you are a, you're religious leaders and your heart is so far from me. And as I was working through the passage, I just kept coming face to face with this question of Jesus seemingly looking at me and asking, do you love me more than anything else? And there were moments over the course of the past several days in particular as I sat down to try to write and really struggled to write. Struggled not because I didn't have a mind filled with thoughts of what to potentially communicate, but struggled in the sense that as I would sit down to write, I kept being brought to these points of having to talk to Jesus about, I think I might love this more than you. I think I might love this more than you. And so this morning, as we talk together, I want to maybe just, just present this question to you, to maybe frame our conversation, and maybe just for you to carry through our conversation. Do we really love Jesus? Do we really love Jesus? Or have we just gotten good at making it look like we do? Do we really love Jesus? Or are we just really good at making it look like we do? So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to start into our conversation. Father, thank you that we can be gathered this morning. Father, pray that as we work our way through your words and stories of your son, Jesus, that you might change our hearts, that we might be more like you, that we might be more in love with you, that we might be more submitted to you. So, Father, teach us and give us humble and receptive hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story begins in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, in this way. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now Mark tells us that a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law have traveled from Jerusalem, seemingly to watch Jesus and his disciples, waiting them to do something that the Pharisees can take offense at. It's a small detail, but it almost shows the way in which Jesus and his disciples seem to have started to take up permanent residence in the Pharisees' minds and world. Jerusalem, where they have traveled from, it's 90 miles from Capernaum where Jesus and his disciples are. 90 miles is four and a half days of journeying. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were so interested in just gathering around Jesus and his disciples, and we know based on the first six chapters of the book that they're not really gathering around because they have an interest in learning from him. They're gathering around him so that they can find things that he's doing wrong things that they can accuse him of, things that they can use to potentially undermine his increasingly growing ministry throughout the region. And so they travel four and a half days. And Mark tells us that they see the disciples, and the disciples are eating food with unwashed hands. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal, Um, for us. But for the Pharisees and the people influenced by their teaching, it's a very big deal. The Pharisees believed and taught others that prior to eating any meal, they should undergo a kind of preemptive ceremonial cleansing process in order to ensure that while they're eating, they don't defile themselves or make themselves unclean. The idea is that while they were at the marketplace and they got covered in dirt, some of that dirt may have touched a Samaritan. It may have touched a Gentile. And now it's gotten onto them. And if that were to get inside of them somehow, they would become ceremonially or ritually unclean. And so the Pharisees taught all of their followers, anytime you sit down to eat, wash your arms and hands. Some of the commentaries actually state that they think they washed all the way to their elbows just to make sure that they got everything. Mark includes the detail here that they would scrub the inside of the pots that they would use to cook, that they would wash the plates, that they would use, the language actually indicates that they would use a fist to grind in to make sure that they got all of the dirt out that they possibly could because if they were to become unclean, then they would be, in essence, separated from their community. If they become ritually unclean, they have to remove themselves from their religious community, their social community, their work, until they can go through a process in which they cleanse themselves again and then they can re-enter into their community and relationships, their work and their worship. And in a sense, there's a biblical precedent for this. 
In the Old Testament, God instructed the priests to wash their hands before offering sacrifices on behalf of the Jewish people. But God never instructed all of his people to do this. He never instructed all of his people to go through a cleansing ritual whenever they mate, ate a meal. It's a completely made-up religious rule that is intended to keep people pure and clean and in right standing with God. The Pharisees ultimately take something that God had said for one particular group of people and in a particular situation and say, better safe than sorry. Everyone should do this all of the time that we sit at a table. We should all act as though we are priests. This is important to the Pharisees and upstanding Jewish people. Because if they become unclean, they have to be separated or removed from their community. We also learn that these vast and expansive religious rules and systems that the Pharisees create, these actually become a mechanism for the Pharisees to continue maintaining religious control over people. That they're the experts in understanding and explicating and enforcing all of these rules. So in verse 5, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they ask him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And again, on the surface, it might just seem like a straightforward question. Why are your disciples doing something that we teach them they shouldn't? But their question reveals a deeper, more fundamental disagreement with Jesus. The Pharisees have developed this tradition, this vast and expansive set of religious rules and regulations that they hear in their question refer to as the tradition of the elders. Why don't your disciples, Jesus, keep the traditions of the elders? And I guess you can, if you want to make Jesus mad, I guess, ask him why all of the people that are made in his image Ask him why they're not doing something he never told them to do. Because Jesus, he hears this question, and you almost like in my mind when I was reading this over and over and over again, that language, tradition of the elders, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? It almost feels like to me, Jesus in that moment was like, I've been waiting for you to ask. I will tell you why. And he answers this way. In verses 6 through 8, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. It's a word that literally means people who play act, who put on a mask and play act. As it is written, and he's looking directly at them. So when he says these people, he's saying you. These people. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. 
It is a stinging rebuke. The Pharisees honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Jesus says their worship is useless, their teachings are powerless, and they've abandoned the ways of God for man-made laws. Jesus knows the Pharisees love their religious system more than they love God. Jesus knows that the Pharisees want to entrench and expand their own power politically and culturally more than they want to experience the kingdom of God. There's a passage in the Old Testament where God, through the prophet Amos, rebukes the Israelites. Hundreds of years prior to this story recorded in Mark 7, there's a moment where God, through Amos, looks at God's people, similar to the Pharisees, and he rebukes them. He says this in Amos 5, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Stop the religious performance. Stop performing if you don't actually love me. Don't sing songs to me. Don't bring offerings to me. Don't do those things. They're worthless if you do not love me. God goes on through Amos. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. It's as though those last four lines speak directly of the vast and expansive religious system that the Pharisees have created, this shrine of their king, the pedestal of their idol, the star of their God, which they made for themselves is all of their religious rituals and rules that God never commanded his people to follow. God rebukes the Israelites through Amos because they have embraced a performative kind of religion rather than a kind of faith that establishes, as we see all throughout the prophets, especially in Isaiah, a faith that establishes both justice and righteousness as its cornerstones. God requires just and righteous living as prerequisites for worship that's acceptable to him. It's not dissimilar from when Jesus says, you know, if, if you have an issue with your brother, set, like set the offering down and go be made right with your brother. God will not give approval to a kind of religion 
that ignores the needs of the under-resourced, weak, and vulnerable. In Amos, he's specifically reminding them righteousness and justice are the cornerstones to worship that is acceptable. Amos tells us that God wants righteousness and justice to flow through his people into the world like an endless and mighty river. And that righteousness and justice are the marks of a person and a people whose hearts are captured by and belong to God. And Jesus makes clear that he demands the same of anyone who would dare worship him. Because in the next few verses of Mark 7, he launches into a diatribe about a practice that's promoted and embraced by the Pharisees known as Corbin. So I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to explain it. It begins in verse 9. And he, Jesus, continued. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Right there. Jesus is pointing back to actual Old Testament law. He's pointing the Pharisees and everyone who can hear them back to actual things that God commanded his people to do and obey and follow in the Old Testament. He goes on, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. He's giving one example, this Corbin practice, but he's ultimately saying this is one example of a myriad of ways in which you do this. Corbin was a religious custom. It allowed Jewish people to devote particular goods to God. And maybe if you're of a financial mind, it's almost a way of, think of like deferred giving. You say, my house, I'm going to give it to the church when I die. And so in the meantime, you live in it. You use it. But because you have dedicated it to the church, should you have a family member that ever comes in need, you can't use your house to care for them. The house belongs to the church now. Theologian um, T.W. Manson, he writes this. He says, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. That was the actual practice of Corbin. The idea is specifically rooted in this sense where Jesus is talking about parents. He's talking about fathers and mothers. He's legitimately saying you have taken things that your parents, as they get old, as they get sick, as they potentially find themselves in financial need, the very things that you actually possess that you could use to care for them, that you should selflessly use to care for them, because that's what God has actually commanded you to do in the book of Exodus, you have created a religious system that looks at people and says, it is righteous for you 
to take your house and devote it to God and deny your own parents the support and help that they need. And Jesus specifically rebukes the Pharisees for the way that they not only allow but encourage people to use this practice as a way of withholding care and support for their under-resourced, elderly, sick parents. What Jesus is doing is elevating God's law back to its proper preeminent place over and above the tradition of the elders. In essence, through the practice of Corbin, the Pharisees have taught people that they can posture They can play at being religious, that they can act like they're in love with God, when in reality their hearts are far from God, and they're actually finding ways to ignore submitting their lives to God's words and ways. The passage ends with Jesus saying this, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's not, it's not the dust or dirt you might get into you while you're eating that makes you unclean. It's not the dust or dirt that you miss on your elbow before you eat that separates you from me. For it is from within, Jesus says, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside, and they are what make you unclean. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and saying, you've created a vast and extensive system that's intended to keep people pure, clean, and in good standing with God. But your system actually leads them away from God. And they don't address what actually makes a person impure or unclean. For Jesus, eating food with dirty hands doesn't make us unclean. Eating foods with unwashed hands doesn't separate us from God. What makes us unclean and separates us from God is what is in our hearts and that we live out into the world. According to Jesus, sexual immorality, things like pornography, sexual intimacy outside the relational bounds of marriage, stealing, killing, cheating on your spouse, selfishly striving after financial wealth, doing evil, lying, committing sexual or physical abuse, jealousy and resentment, I love that Jesus includes that one because you can listen to this list and you're like, I don't know if I do evil, I haven't committed abuse, and um, I'm not killing anyone, so I'm good, right? No. Resentment and jealousy as well. Those are in there. Making false accusations about another person, pride, and foolishness. That's what folly means, foolishness. Jesus says that's what really defiles a person. That those are the things that make a person unclean. And this is where I come back to the question that we started with. Do we really love Jesus or have we just gotten really good at making it look like we do?
for me this week, that list at the end created this ongoing, recurring moment of self-reflection. What is in my heart? What am I living out? What am I thinking and believing that makes me unclean? So I'm going to take that list that Jesus just gave and I'm going to ask it in a more direct question. If you're honest, in a moment of quiet self-reflection, is there any sexual immorality in your life today? Or are you consistently angry with someone? Have you stolen something? Have you cheated on your spouse, even in your thoughts or with pornography? Are you greedy, wanting to accumulate as much wealth as possible for your own gain? Do you struggle to tell the truth consistently? Are you frequently jealous and resentful of others who have things you want for yourself? Are you prideful? Do you make repetitive, foolish decisions? If we can answer even close to yes for any of those, we should spend some time with Jesus. There is no condemnation in Jesus. There is grace and mercy in Jesus, and he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts in a way where he will take our yeses to these questions, receive them, bear them, and cleanse them. As Paul writes, he will take our sin and separate it like as far as the east is from the west. There's no fear for us as followers of Jesus, as his daughters and sons, in coming to him and saying, my heart is far from you in these ways. Because it's in that place that he moves towards us, meets us, forgives us, and restores us. It doesn't matter how well we sing worship songs. It doesn't matter how beautiful our prayers are. Doesn't matter how good our neighborhood group conversations are. Thankfully, it doesn't matter how moving my sermon might be. If our hearts are far from God, if our hearts do not really belong to Jesus, and if our hearts aren't possessed by Jesus alone, none of our religious performance matters because it's all empty. As Jesus says, it's, it's a resounding gong. Clanging symbols. Paul says that, sorry. If we are a faith community that goes through the motions of performing our religious duties, but we don't submit our hearts to Jesus, if our individual and corporate lives aren't marked by righteousness and justice, 
if we aren't seeing and moving towards those who have need, then unfortunately this story indicates we're not much better than the Pharisees. So what are we to do with all of this? First, I think we need to be honest with ourselves that we can fall into the same trap the Pharisees did. We can create some, who said, oh yeah, over here. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Might come to you for an example in a moment or two. We can create rules that we think if we follow them, they'll ensure our standing before God. This is why there are entire communities of Christians who believe that they need to exclude certain types of people. It's a rule they've made up on how they can remain clean and pure and righteous before God will keep them out. The Pharisees believed that if they thoroughly cleansed themselves before eating, they could prevent becoming unclean or defiled, and we can fall into the same trap. We can create rules for ourselves and others that we think will keep us and them pure and clean. Pastor Shaq, who's on vacation with his family this week, he gave me these two examples that there are Christians who believe they shouldn't spend time with non-Christians. They make this rule. We should only associate with other believers. And there are Christians who believe they aren't to enjoy any earthly pleasures. I was at a wedding over the past few days. One person stood off to the side, arms crossed, not dancing. I just went and asked, why not dancing? Because it doesn't honor Jesus. Okay. It's not a rule I'm familiar with. I, I had the thought of maybe reminding the person of the story of David dancing naked in the street, but I felt like maybe not the time, not my wedding. There are Christians who have made rules around which political candidates and parties we have to support in order to be Christian. That if we don't agree with certain policies or positions, and if we don't cast our vote for particular people, then we're not properly living our faith as Christians. Are there things in our lives that we believe we need to do in order to be good Christians that God never asked us to do? we go back just a few weeks, I talked about what it means for us to be disciples. One of the things I talked about was learning Jesus' teaching, learning what he actually teaches. We need to be people who are founded in Jesus' teaching, in God's actual word and ways, and not our man-made religious rules or systems. Second thing, what's the state of our hearts? Honestly, if what comes out of our hearts is what defiles or distances us from God, then we need to be engaging in spiritual rhythms and practices that help connect us to Jesus and help us become more like Jesus. 
one of the things, again, a few weeks ago, what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus. It means, in part, that we need to seek to take on Jesus' character and ways. And just to remind you of all four of those things from a few weeks ago, because I thought they were good then and I think they're good now. We need to spend time with Jesus. We need to learn Jesus' teaching. We need to seek to take on Jesus' characters and ways. And we need to live Jesus' kingdom mission. Those first three things, they address our relationship with God and the condition of our hearts so that as we engage the mission of Jesus, we do it in a way that is marked by righteousness and justice. Church, God isn't interested in our religious performance. He wants our hearts. He wants to be the sole source of our love and affection. And so I'm going to ask the question that we started with. I'm going to take about 60 to 90 seconds. As a heads up, in a corporate setting like this, 60 to 90 seconds tends to feel long. Okay? So when it starts to feel awkward, we're leaning in. I want to create that space so that as I ask this question, you actually have a few moments, that we have a few moments to reflect. That before we move into receiving communion together as a church family, that we have a few moments to reflect. So that Jesus can speak to us in his gentle, patient, gracious, and merciful way. So that Jesus has these next few moments to maybe begin to reveal to us the ways our hearts are far from him. And speak his grace and mercy and love into those spaces. So, here's the question. We'll take 60 to 90 seconds. And then I'll walk us through communion together. Do we really love Jesus? Or have we just gotten good at making it look like we do?